Hi, everyone. I'm Kage from the Total Space Becoming Multiplanetary podcast. I'm joined by another space nut, Rich and Miko, for a interesting session that we're going to do with the Space Master, TJ Cooney, from the venerable YouTube channel, I Need More Space. Hey, everybody. Thanks for having me. Very welcome to be here. We're really honored to have you here, TJ. We're really looking forward to what we're going to chat about this episode. Yeah, I, uh, I'm happy to be here, happy to help support a quickly growing podcast, and uh, yeah, let's let's talk about space. So just quickly, before we get on with the conversation, TJ, for any new listeners, anybody that's not aware of who you are, could you explain a little bit more about you know the, the brand you represent and maybe your recent projects, which I think is inspiring? So yeah, my name is TJ Cooney. I'm the person behind the YouTube channel, I Need More Space, which I started about uh, three years ago. It's grown steadily over the last three years, and I'm, I'm very proud of it to several million views. Um, and really, my goal with the channel is to just be a guy on the internet uh, talking about space in a way that most people can understand. And uh, as of late, I've just started uh, doing a project which uh, I've titled... I Need More Moon, which hopefully is appropriate for the channel name. And really the project is pretty simple. It came across my plate in around 4th of July, actually, when somebody on my Discord was showing how uh, on the Peregrine Lunar Lander that's launching on the first Vulcan uh, next summer of 2021, that anybody could purchase a little capsule on board, which is, you know, maybe the size of a, for you, those of you in the United States, a quarter, about three quarters of an inch in diameter. Um, you could purchase a capsule, put whatever you want in it. And we all just started brainstorming, oh, wouldn't it be cool to put X, Y, or Z inside of it? Something kind of hit me is like, maybe this is an opportunity to get my viewers involved and we can all do something pretty special. So we thought, oh, you know, we can maybe do an engraving and, you know, send a bunch of names to the moon like, you know, NASA's done in the past for, for Mars or uh, other other missions. And when we really started looking into it, we, we realized actual technical challenge of pulling that off the special machinery required the special materials required and the time uh to really flesh out how you can actually execute this it's not just something you can go to a local um maker space and have this thing made you need extremely specialized uh, machines that are worth hundreds of thousands of dollars to pull this off so it took me a while to find the right company to partner with and who was willing to work with me with somebody who's on a on a tight budget as well as work with Astrobotic to make sure I'm picking the right sized uh, capsule to put on board uh, the Peregrine Lunar Lander, uh, which is landing in Lacus Mortis, which is the, the northeasternly part of the moon. So, yeah, it took about three months of development um, to really figure out what's the right font, what's the right size, what's the smallest diameter the laser can go, which turns out to be about eight microns. Um, a single micron is about the diameter of a human hair, which is about the, the diameter that J, the, of the laser JPL uses. That's an extremely unique laser, one of a kind that I naturally don't have access to because I am not JPL. So um, Control Laser, the company that's working with me on this project, their laser goes down to about eight microns. So our engravings won't be as small as what you've seen on Curiosity or uh, the other landers on Mars, but uh, it's going to be pretty small. I mean, you're going to have to look, look under under a microscope, but the names will be there. And frankly, you know, 10 years ago, this was not even five years ago, this project was not possible. 
person off the street couldn't just go and spend this little amount of money when you're thinking about in the scale of aerospace, this is pennies, uh, to actually send something to the moon. It's really like amazing. And I just couldn't pass this up. This was just a, an opportunity that you know, when am I ever going to be able to send something to the moon and be able to look up for the rest of my life and know that I've sent something there? And I wanted everybody to be involved. You know, this is the, the space community in general is just so rich and passionate and friendly. Let's figure it out. So we know that we have a very locked set of names that we'll be able to engrave on this piece of silicate. Um, and we picked silicate because at a microscopic level, it's still very smooth. It doesn't have many pits in it, where if you use something like gold, silver, aluminum, steel, there's actually a lot of pitting, regardless of how well it's sanded. So silicate was the material of choice. And we're still nailing down the exact number of names. Uh, there's been probably half a dozen laser attempts so far with varying levels of this, of success. And uh, we're trying to make sure we can get it as small and clear as possible. So we know we'll be able to get a, a couple thousand names on that piece of silicate, but there's more than a few thousand people <laughs> that uh, I, I figured would have enough want to do this. So there's enough room in our payload to fit in a micro SD card of which I've uh, selected one of the more expensive ones. It's an industrial endurance SD card, uh, which is good for extreme temperatures. So uh, any of the excess names will be put on this micro SD card. And then I'm also going to be uh, sending various files and mementos to, uh, to put on board uh, the lander. And I'm also going to wrap this SD card in a layer of lead so it will uh, be able to withstand the radiation. So it went from just a little spark of an idea to really big and now it's only been the project's only been announced for about 24 hours and i think we have over 3,000 names already thank you for sharing that with us tj that's quite an amazing story i'm really excited and i will leave a link to where anybody listening to this podcast can sign their name up yeah i need more moon.com pretty simple it's actually been a really touching project because uh, people have been just coming out of nowhere telling me, you know, what it, how excited they are for the project. And even just not even an hour ago, I had a gentleman on Twitter reach out to me who works with uh, children with cancer. And he was like, you know, uh, of all these kids who, you know, are fighting cancer, can I put all of their names under my one email? I'm like, absolutely. Like, I don't know. It's just like, it's really special to see the community come together. And also, uh, it's, it's frankly touching more people than I could have ever imagined. So uh, I'm just blessed to have this opportunity to do something exciting for the mission and for the community. I mean, genuinely, I, I can say as a space note, proud space note, you know, I'm, I genuinely thank you. You know, it's, it's cost you, I'd imagine, a small fortune from your personal finances in order to do this. And, you know, it's, it's to inspire the world. Really, it's a nice thing to do. Yeah, I was uh, telling somebody on my YouTube that you could probably buy at least a dozen Tesla tequilas and you still wouldn't be able to uh, afford this project. So uh, for those of you who aren't aware, a Tesla tequila bottle is like 250 bucks, I think. I was trying to do the math. How many shots of tequila could I give out per bottle? Would I be able to make a bigger impact, making people happy that way or this way? But I think I picked the right uh, option. My question to you is, how did you get started in this content creation business? Like, what got you onto the path of, I need more space, really? Sure. So, I mean, I think it starts with all of us when we're, we're kids. You know, we have all these different passions. And my passion's always been space. I, want, I, want, I wanted to be an astronaut when I was a kid. I made models. I went to space camp, you know, did the whole nine yards. was very lucky to do that. And as I got older, other interests came into play, uh, mainly filmmaking. 
you know, video production, doing documentaries and things of that nature. That's what I went to, that's what I went to college for. That's what my career is in by day. I'm a video producer and, and director. And, you know, I was a few years into that career, uh, probably four or five years into that career. And I just started having an itch. You know, I was making a lot of content for YouTube for the different brands I was working for and was working on building YouTube channels for those brands. Uh, the company I actually I was working for was Discovery. Um, and I was working on a bunch of different channels, TLC, Animal Planet, you know, military channel at the time and making YouTube videos. And I really started learning about the platform and seeing, you know, I, I frankly, I got a few videos on the trending tab at the time when the trending tab was a big deal and thinking, man, you know, I, I think I could do this, you know, on my own. I've got, I got this itch to tell these stories. I want to do something in space. And this is really, frankly, this was before uh, Tim Dodd, the everyday astronaut, or even Scott Manley really started making um, their videos. Amy Shira title actually was uh, a big inspiration of mine because at the time she was one of the only content creators on YouTube in this space, no pun intended. And it just took me a while to get it off the ground. I was working on different uh, the graphics package. What would the name be? You know, what would my personality be? And, you know, at first I thought, oh, well, you know, this should be pretty easy. I make videos for a living doing it on my own, which should be, you know, I could be able to turn these around pretty quick. And I learned pretty quickly that that's not necessarily the case. When you're the person on camera and you're writing a script for yourself for the first time, you have no idea what you're doing. It took time for me to figure out what was my personality and style that made me feel comfortable on camera. It's one thing to be behind the camera and direct other people and to get to know their personality and write for that. Completely different thing doing it on your own. So when you go back and watch my early videos, which I like can't bring myself to do, you'll see a big change in how I carry myself and tell these stories. So long story short, I, I wanted an outlet for my creativity, uh, but I wanted that outlet to be something that I'm passionate about because in the end, as I'm sure you all are seeing with this podcast, if you're going to do all this work mainly for free, it better be something you really enjoy doing because you're going to spend so many hours working on something that possibly nobody will watch or listen to. Luckily for you all, that's not the case. But for me at the beginning, it was the case. I mean, you know, it was awesome when I got a hundred views on a video or then a thousand views on a video, you know? So that's really what was the start of it. And I just kept going, you know, I'm not making as many videos as I would like. So because of that, I'm really focusing on videos that I think are worth my time and worth the audience's time and doing something that's in my voice and hopefully from an angle that many people don't see or expect. So that's, that's kind of the long winded explanation of how I got into this business, so to speak. That's great to hear. An interesting story. I actually put my name on the Moon Project already yesterday. My question is, uh, how has starting the channel changed your life? I don't know, so many ways. Well, now my friends and family know how obsessed I am with space. Uh, it was like a closet passion before. When you start putting your face and name on the internet, then you start getting text messages, emails and everything telling me all about stuff that SpaceX is doing. And I'm like, yeah, I appreciate that, guys. I know that. But it's still, it's great. How it's changed my life, though. I mean, I would say only for the better in every way. It's really about the people that what it comes down to. I've gotten the opportunity to meet and talk with so many people that before making this channel, I would have never had a reason or reason to know or an opportunity to know. And that's probably the biggest thing. And then also the access 
to things that I always wanted access to. But you know, when you're somebody who doesn't necessarily have a platform, so to speak, there's no not a whole lot of incentive for companies or individuals to give you access to special things because you need the justification. They need the justification to do that, you know, or else it's way too much work for them to like give you footage to give footage or photos or something to somebody who frankly is going to use it for their own personal purposes. So by creating this platform, it's given me the opportunity to get on NASA press calls or get invites to launches or just connect with leaders or administrators in the space universe and get to know them. That's probably it. You know, I mean, I'm one of the lucky few that Jim Bridenstine does follow on Twitter. And it's like, you know, that would have never happened if I didn't start the YouTube channel or start the ridiculous Mountain Dew, diet Mountain Dew memes. But that's besides the point. So yeah, the way it's changed my life is just getting to know this incredible community of people. And I feel really blessed that they've welcomed me into it. When was the first time you saw a rocket launch and How many rocket launches you have seen actually uh, on the spot? Ha, huh. that's a fun question because the answer is zero. I mean, I have seen Antares launches from distance, but I have actually never been to a launch like at the facility in person. I've had the opportunities to go, but because of my work or my personal life, just haven't been able to get the trip to Florida. Um, I was actually planning this year to go to the DM2 launch, um, but with the coronavirus and with a young child at home, it was just not the right decision to make. So my plan was this year to have gone to at least one launch down to Florida, but it, the, you know the virus changed all of that. Uh, I'm lucky that I live in Washington D.C., so I'm lucky that Wallops Island is only a few hours away. And now with Rocket Lab there, the launch cadence is going to be picking up. So uh, I really do hope to be going to launches more often over there, but. I wish that the answer was more than zero, but it is. It's zero. I've been to all the a lot of the facilities. I've been to SpaceX. I've been to Cape Canaveral. I've been to Wallops. Not when there's been launches. I've seen hardware up close, but I have not been to a launch yet. So I am really looking forward to that day because I'm probably going to cry. I don't cry that often, but that's like, I don't know. When you're making content this long and following it to this level, I'm just looking forward to feeling that rumble in my chest. Um, the, the closest thing that I got to do was last summer for the Apollo 50th anniversary In Washington, D.C., we have the National Mall where we have like the Washington Monument where the Apollo 11 launch was projected on the monument. And I got to give the creators a lot of credit there. The The sound design was spectacular. It was so loud. You could feel that F1 engine rumble in your chest. That only got me more interested in going to a launch. But it was six months later, our country shut down. So hopefully 2021, you know, maybe for Crew 2 or something, I'll be I'll have the opportunity to get there. Or even SLS, that's a, that's a launch I really want to go see. I really want to see a launch too, because you don't really see those launches here in Europe. The only thing I actually have seen is ISS flying overhead. <laughs> yeah, it's not quite the same when you see a little dot in the distance flying across the sky. You know there's people there. You know that humans made that, but when it's so far away, it can be hard to get. I don't know, it's not as a visceral experience. Yes, I have one question. Hello, I'm Susie. And I wanted to ask DJ uh, if he had to choose one memorable or his favorite moment since he started the channel, what would it be? Hands down, DM2. And Susie, thank you for the question. Uh, DM2. I don't know. I, I think we've all just been waiting for that day. I'm just getting, I'm getting goosebumps right now. We've all just been waiting for that day for when people will be flying not only from the United States again, but just on a new spacecraft. 
you know, the shuttle had been gone for so long. Nearly the entire planet had been strapped to the Soyuz at that point. I mean, yes, uh, the Chinese have been sending crews um, to lower Earth orbit, uh, but that's, let's be honest, that's not necessarily open or democratic opportunity. So it was really through Russia. And to see, to really follow closely the development of Crew Dragon and Cargo Dragon over the years and seeing the failures and successes that SpaceX and NASA have gone through to get to that point. I mean, it really was like watching a movie in real life to see Bob and Doug go up in that flawless mission, especially after what happened with Starliner about six months prior, uh, maybe four months prior to that. You know, attitudes weren't super great, but just to see that happen in that way uh, was definitely the highlight of my career. And I was lucky enough to do a live stream of that launch with uh, myself and Felix and Marcus you know, it was just awesome. It was just so great to share that with them. Yeah, it was just that DM2, hands down. And following on from that, how much are you looking forward to Crew 1? Oh my God, I, I am nerding. I'm nerding so hard. I have a 20 minute long video that's coming out the morning of the launch, all about the mission. I mean, I've been following Victor Glover on Twitter since he became an astronaut and following his path. Shannon Walker, I mean, that woman has been, she is the second longest tenured astronaut, I believe, on the crew. Uh, then we have Soichi, Soichi Noguchi, who that guy, I mean, people don't realize that this is going to be his third spacecraft he's taking to space. The third different one. He's flown on the shuttle. He's flown on the Soyuz. Now he's flying on Crew Dragon. Uh, the only other person who I think has been able to say that is John Young, who flew up on maybe even yeah he flew on gemini shuttle a gemini apollo shuttle and he also flew the lunar lander so he's technically flown four different spacecraft in space so soichi is in like a very rare club of people who have flown three different spacecraft to space and then hopkins is the commander you know i'm frankly i'm a little surprised he got a commander slot because it is only his second mission um and there are more seasoned astronauts in the astronaut corps but i'm sure it was for good reason he's a very experienced test pilot if you see one 30s and C-17s, you know, I'm sure he's going to be a fantastic commander of the mission. He's he's a great pilot. But just with that, when you look at that crew, I mean, I'm excited about the diversity. I'm excited about the backgrounds that they represent. And also, this is a full-up mission. This is not a test. This is, we're now entering operational crew launches to Space Station. And hopefully with the onlining of Starliner, hopefully at the end of this year, which I'm not holding my breath, but I'm hoping in the next few months that mission goes off without a hitch, America and the world is going to be sending more people to space. We're going to be doing more science, which is the reason for doing all of this. And more people in general are going to get the opportunity. Plus, the other side effect of this is the commercial launches outside of the NASA-sponsored launches. I know that the, um, I don't think it was Axios, another company, Space Ventures, maybe you guys can correct me or a, viewer, a listener can correct me, just booked a, a mission on Crew Dragon for next year. All private, paid for you know launch tom cruise and a director a film director are going to space station next year i mean it's just going to open up the door to way bigger projects and more opportunities for the world to go to space and it's kind of not to like draw comparisons with the i need more moon project but the way space is being more open and available to people on a very small scale with our peregrine lunar lander to the very large scale of commercial crew opportunities that's just what i see i just see it's like watching a flood 
floodgate just creepily slowly opening and more water and more water is coming out and hopefully uh it gets the whole world more involved and excited and supportive so they'll start to understand how important space exploration and the science involved is for our planet i also don't want to forget i forgot to mention scott Perzinski was also on the live stream a shuttle astronaut spacewalker he was on the mission with john glenn we also shared it with him so it was really special to also share that mission with a real astronaut um and i know scott outside of youtube and he's a great guy and it was just awesome to uh, be able to share that with him as well so you actually mentioned something a moment ago tj about how this is a big step the uh, crew one mission is a big step towards getting us to other planets that's actually a nice segue into becoming multiplanetary. Can you talk a little bit about, like, how do you feel about the current commercialization of space and where not only SpaceX, but also Blue Origin, uh, Virgin Galactic, uh, United Launch Alliance, so many others. How do you think that they're going to get us to that stage of becoming multiplanetary? I think the commercialization of it was inevitable. Um, you look at any other kinds of science or technologies where we've really seen a lot of development and growth. There was a some level of commercialization involved. The biggest challenge that they're going to approach is making it profitable because you can have all the best intentions for a product in the world, but if you can't make money from it, it's not sustainable. So what is going to be the big challenge to get the human race multiplanetary outside of robotics, but actually human beings on other worlds is to find a way to actually make it a profitable business because this is not charity. Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, as great as their intentions are, they're not doing this for a charity. They see the dollar signs. They see the opportunity where maybe, frankly, most people don't. The vast, vast majority of people don't. But if they can actually pull that off and create products that allow the little guy to get involved, but also the big guys... I think that we have a very bright future ahead of us. So a lot of people don't necessarily understand like what the commercialization aspect of all of this means. Uh, you know, you hear a lot of these the contracts. Uh, there's there's basically uh, fundamentally uh, two different types of contracts that the the government signs with contractors. Um, you have a fixed price contract, which typically means a contractor that uh, you've hired to do a job. Uh, you pay them to do the job, but they own the the technology behind it. They own the product behind it. Uh, the downside is that they have to do it for a fixed price. It's not an open-ended contract. Uh, then there's a cost plus contract where you're hiring a contractor to do the job. The contract's structured in such a way that they can ask for more money, but the U.S. government or a government owns that project at the end of it. So when you look at the space launch system, the space shuttle, Apollo, Mercury, Gemini, ISS, those were all, well, largely cost plus contracts. And at the end of the day, the U.S. government owns and operates those systems. And for a lot of projects, that's the only way to go about it because there's a lot of unknown costs. As uh, Elon has said in the past, every single multi-satellite communications satellite company has gone out of business except Starlink. Uh, it costs a lot of money to, to do that. So I think that the analogy of letting the governments of the world with these contracts to lay down the, the railroad tracks, so to speak, um, and, and show the path of what commercialization can do by riding those tracks and then allowing these companies to, through fixed price contracts, to 
make their spacecraft and technology in such a way that it, it's affordable and manageable and doesn't have any bloat so that they can also take that product and sell it to private organizations or citizens. So it's an end around way of saying, I, I think that shows a lot of promise. I think that there's always going to be government involvement just because of the, the costs involved. And I'm really looking forward to seeing how they approach the challenge of making it profitable so that there's more R&D put into it. And I think Starship and New Glenn are really going to dictate the next 50 to 100 years of spaceflight because how they work fundamentally is going to dictate the iterative process in these booster development cycles. It's a really good point that you bring up about uh, making this something that's profitable, but uh, even more than that, sustainable. And if you look at, for example, the, the Apollo program, that was largely driven by nationalist kind of motivations of being the first country to land on the moon. Not just the first people, but representing a nation. What would you see as, from a high-level perspective even, what would you see as the best way to get this into a sustainable thing that it's no longer so much about the human drive or even the national drive behind it, but something that becomes a profitable motive that even is perhaps an infrastructure that we rely upon? Where would you see that? For myself, I see it as when, when you look at space communicators, I think it's part of our job to really educate the general public on what the value is and what the ROI is, what the return on investment is on this investment in space. So there's that, because if you can't get the general public on board, you're going to be very hard to get Congress on board. In the United States, Congress, they handle the money. If you can get the general public on board, you're more likely to get other private organizations on board because, well, they're made up of the public. I think that Elon and Bezos are on to something with the uh, reusability aspect of it. We need to drive the costs down. It's a complicated question, but I think with Apollo, it was all about the here and now. And we've seen what that kind of thinking can do. It can do amazing things for humanity and for technology, but it also has the drawback of, you know, uh, you're, you're making something really great to do it right now, but not in 5, 10, 50 years. And we need to think about things in the latter way. And I do honestly think that NASA and administrators have really shifted their thinking into that. I mean, I know with the shuttle and with the ISS, especially with the shuttle, the idea was that it was going to be a sustainable system. And I do think that a lot of people went into it with good intentions, but it ended up not being that way. So I really hope that leadership can really look at the lessons learned from shuttle look at the lessons learned from even how ula has done things and how spacex has done things to help educate how can we not just essentially just light money on fire and just let it go away let's keep that money here for us to keep using and when i say money i mean actual systems i think it's from the ground up yes it comes to the from the boosters but also what are other technologies we can do here on the ground to help make it more sustainable, whether it's the launch structures, whether it's software or services on terra firma that utilize these these space systems. I think Starlink is a great example of, of that. But Starlink is kind of the beginning. There's lots of other applications. Um, Planet Labs, I mean, their constellation of uh, CubeSats that are taking daily high-res imagery of, of the planet's surface uh, there's going to be so many applications for those kinds of systems that people don't even realize yet. I mean, 
that local governments and individuals, my family owns a farm. It would be really great for us to analyze year over year how the water is transitioning across the surface of our fields to help figure out how we can get better yields. And Planet Labs is taking pictures daily of, of our property. Uh, and it would be great one day to be able to, for us to pay for an annual service or something. And we can literally watch a time lapse of how water and is interacting on our, on our property so that maybe we need to improve our irrigation. That way we get better yields. So, you know, there's just an insane amount of applications out here. And, uh, I think it just all comes down to uh, the mighty dollar. Yeah, very much so. Susie, you had an interesting question you wanted to ask TJ. Uh, yes, I had another question, and uh, since these are tumultuous times and we are lucky enough to be witnessing this new space race, as they call it, there's many new companies, newcomers in the private sector that are getting into the market and doing their thing. Is there one uh, that you look at closely and that interests you the most? Personally, I'm very fond of, of Rocket Lab, and uh, but there are many other newcomers who are getting started. Do you have a favorite one or a most interesting one that you find? Well, Rocket Lab is incredible what they've done with that little booster and really shown how the scale of things doesn't have to be as big as they used to be. I mean, so much technology you can fit on just such a small PCB these days and very affordably. I mean, their Rocket Lab, I think, is going to have a lot of success. Um, I look at the other startups like Vector and things of that nature that are building their own small medium lift rockets. Okay, so the company, though, that I am actually really into is Relativity Space. They are taking like 3D printing to a next level. And a historically, a lot of the problems with 3D printing uh, at, the, at this large scale of like the, the, the booster cylinders and things of that nature, uh, there have been a lot of technical issues and they've developed with the investment, with, with investments from like private investors such as like uh, Mark Cuban, 3D, these, these amazing 3D printers that are their own IP that they could eventually just build out a ton of rockets uh, at a low cost. Now, I don't believe that their plans in the immediate future are for reusability, but the, the trade-off is that they're going to be making incredibly light boosters very affordably at a large scale. So it's, it's a different means of doing the business. I am very much looking forward to seeing how Relativity gets off the ground, quite literally. Uh, they've shown a lot of promise and uh, they're young, ambitious, and innovative you know, God forbid that company fails. I think that there's going to be a ton of great learnings for the aerospace industry as a whole that we can learn from them uh, because they're taking a lot of modern manufacturing processes, much like SpaceX, much like Blue Origin are doing. Uh, but they're, I think they're taking it to another level um, that not even Rocket Lab is doing yet. So that's probably the one company that I'm also very excited about seeing grow. Thank you so much, TJ, for joining us. This is TJ from I Need More Space. I am Kage, one of the co-hosts of Becoming Multiplanetary, and now I will hand over to my other co-host. I am Rich LB, and I'm co-host of Becoming Multiplanetary here on Total Space Network. Thank you for listening to today's episode. TJ, thank you for being here. It's been an honor, and it's been great to hear about your project, and also to hear a little bit more about you, uh, your background as well, and how you got here. And with that, I'm going to pass off to another co-host here, which is Miko. I've been Mikko, the host of Deep Dive Fridays. I've been another Space Nut, and thanks for chatting with us here today, TJ. Any leaving thoughts for the listeners? Do yourself a favor, 
and start poking around YouTube and find small creators that are covering space and go and subscribe to them. There are so many people out there who are making really good content that just need a chance. So if you just take 15 minutes today and go and subscribe to three or four YouTube channels that you think are doing great work that maybe have under 5,000 subscribers, you're going to help them a lot, but also you might learn something new. So I really encourage every person listening to go and take 10 or 15 minutes and go find those people because they make difference in your life you may not have realized. That's a very good point, And thank you for bringing that up. I also want to thank you again for joining us as well as our listeners that joined us in this uh, in this little discussion with you. So Warhawk, Energia Baran, uh, Game FTF, Marco M, Susie, and also... Felix from What About It uh, just popped in a little bit late. So thank you all for joining and listening. We hope you enjoyed this uh, podcast and check us out on Twitter, on Anchor FM, various other platforms soon to come.